is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. And I'm Charles Feldman. KNX In-Depth, the daily news magazine where we dig deeper. The big stories of the day with newsmakers and experts from wherever news happens. We take the news seriously, but not ourselves too much. We cover everything from breaking news to the just plain interesting. KNX In-Depth digs deep and asks the hard questions to bring you the facts you need to know. We're back, by the way, from a restful sort of two-week break. Uh, We hope you enjoyed your holidays, but now we start a new year. And this new year, 2022, starts with the FDA approving Pfizer's COVID booster shot for children as young as 12. We'll go in depth into whether this can play a big role in slowing COVID's rapid spread this winter. And if they're even going to be uh, of help for kids of that age. 2022 also starts with some relief from medical bills. There will be much fewer surprises. Uh, Lots of great finishes to Sunday's NFL games. But the biggest story is what happened in the middle of one game. Antonio Brown strips and walks off the field. We'll get into why anyone, especially he, would do that. If you're hopeful for a better 2022 than 2021, just don't pay attention to how much money you're spending on things because yeah. inflation is still around. Just ignore it. That's the best practice. Ignore it. Yeah, it'll go away eventually. Yeah, right. <laughs> New York's attorney general issues subpoenas to former President Trump and his two oldest kids, Donald Jr. and Ivanka, in the civil investigation into how the family does business. Is anything actually going to come of that? And then airline groups are still angry about these plans to implement the 5G technology, their warning of major disruptions, and the cell phone companies are pretty much saying, well, too bad. We're going to do it anyway. So I have a a, uh, a quick uh, Hollywood, only in Hollywood hospital oh, story, right? I like these. Yeah. So I was supposed to be away, but I ended up in the ER because they thought I had appendix. I didn't. But I'm talking to uh, one of the nurses, and the nurse says, uh, I'm retiring after 32 years, uh, and I'm going to just concentrate on my second job. I said, what's your second job? And she said, uh, I do a lot of Hollywood uh, extra work. I do a lot of small parts in movies. I said, oh, wow. Do you have any particular roles you like to play? And she said, two. I said, what are the two? She goes, one, uh, I love playing nurses because I know all the mechanics involved. I said, what's the other? She said, a prostitute. (laughs) (laughs) Only in Hollywood. Welcome to Los Angeles. (laughs) Welcome to L.A. Okay, let's start, though, with kids and booster shots. With us now is Dr. David Kimberlin, professor of pediatrics and co-director of the Division of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. Doctor, thanks for being with us. It's good to be with you all this afternoon. Thank you. So, uh, kids, uh, you know, all along we've been told a number of things. Children don't get COVID as seriously as adults. Their immune system is a lot stronger than adults. They react better to vaccines than certainly senior citizens do. Why do they need boosters? Well, there certainly has been that that thread of information across these last couple of years. But as we all have experienced, as we learn new things, some of the old understanding fades away. And, and I think over the course of the two years, as we've seen 800 or so children actually die of COVID, uh, it is now the eighth leading cause of death in children uh, in this country. Um, I think it kind of puts aside some of those earlier myths of it not being a big deal for children. It certainly can be. Now, that said, 
it, it's a much bigger deal in older adults. I don't mean to, to be drawing, drawing a parallel there, but this is a big deal in children. And having another way to try to decrease the amount of the virus around us not only helps the individual child, that's what these booster uh, authorizations for now 12 through 15 year olds uh, do, so we're, we can boost 12 and over. Um, not only is it better for the individual, but it's better for society. Is some of this also geared toward hopefully keeping the schools open as much as possible? Because I don't think anybody wants to go back to the days where everybody's learning from home. Uh, you're definitely right about that. Um, you know, that we, we learned the hard way of, of the, the deprivation of not being in school and what the downsides of that are. And no one is seeking to go back there. there there's no doubt about it. Uh, I hope so. Um, I do think we have to have in this country a more thorough consideration and conversation about what we expect of these vaccines and boosters. Um, if we expect the, the vaccine and boosters to take care of every runny nose um, caused by this virus, I think we're likely to, to fail at that. I, I don't think we can ask any vaccine to be able to achieve something that remarkable. On the other hand, if we are asking these vaccines to keep us uh, from having severe disease, from being hospitalized and from dying, then that, that they're already doing very well. And we know that having that booster dose will, will have that kind of positive benefit, even against Omicron, which has shifted a little bit in terms of its uh, ability to evade the immune system. So if we're thinking of keeping children in school, not only is it about the child, but it's about the adults in that school as well that are the teachers and the janitors and the, and the, the uh, workers in the in the cafeteria and so forth. And it's by keeping everyone from getting those severe disease um, outcomes and sequelae that, that hopefully this can have that kind of benefit. Dr. David Kimberlin, Professor of Pediatrics at University of Alabama, Birmingham. A new federal law goes into effect that aims to stop surprise medical bills from getting uh, from people getting from, say, a hospital stay. Uh, so with us now is Patricia Kelmar, who is a health uh, care campaigns director at U.S. PERG. Thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. So uh, when we keep hearing about uh, this new law going into effect that's going to stop all of us from getting surprise bills, what exactly are we talking about and how strong is the law? So we probably all have experienced this or know somebody who has. In fact, one in five people who've either gone to an emergency room or had surgery has received a surprise medical bill. And those are those pesky bills that come in the month after your treatment that you find out that an out-of-network doctor that you didn't choose is sending a bill for what your, your insurance hasn't covered. So those are known as out-of-network bills, and they're surprising to us because we didn't actually choose that kind of out-of-network care, um, but we're being held accountable to paying those bills. Okay, so now with this law, what happens to me? I guess the idea behind it is kind of take me out of the equation and let, let those other guys fight it out. Exactly. It's a very important consumer protection, one of the most important ones to save insured American lots of money. So about um, $40 billion every year is added to our health care costs because of these out-of-network bills. So from now on, starting on January 1st, if you receive care in any of these three situations, you will no longer receive an out-of-network bill. You'll be protected from it. These bills are banned. So the three areas where we won't see these bills anymore is anytime we receive emergency services. 
So even if we go to an in or out of network hospital, we won't be hit with an out of network bill. We'll just be paying what we normally would have paid if we were in network, our co-pays, co-insurance, our deductibles. The other two areas that were protected from out of network bills are in the situation of air transportation for emergency, like the air ambulances, the helicopters and the airplanes. Those don't happen too frequently, but consumers have been paying tens of thousands of dollars in charges for those transportations by air. And then the third area is probably one of the most frustrating. That's when you've done everything right. You've picked your in-network hospital, you've picked your in-network doctor, but then somewhere along the way, while you're being treated in a hospital, you've gotten care from maybe an out-of-network anesthesiologist or the x-ray that was taken was done by an out-of-network x-ray company in your own in-network hospital. So these charges are so frustrating because we're doing what we can to stay in-network, to save costs, but then we're getting hit with these outrageous bills. So they are banned as of January 1st. Okay. Now, the terminology, I suspect, is also important, right? Because I've had this situation, maybe you did too, where you go to a doctor's office and they say, oh, yes, the, the doctor takes your insurance. That's not the same, though, or a hospital says, yes, we take your insurance. That's not the same, though, as being in network, right? Exactly. And so these are the surprise bills that we um, continue to see in your regular doctor's offices. So um, it's not the situation that's supposed to be covered under the No Surprises Act. So the No Surprises Act, think about those surprise billing protections in the case of kind of hospital care or outpatient hospital care or ambulatory surgery centers, you know, those out of, um, you know, not in a regular hospital setting. But for sure, consumers still have to be very careful when they go to their regular doctor's office for a regular checkup. Nowadays, we're being offered, oh, just get your blood drawn, you know, right here down the hall. Um, But what we have to ask is, doctor, is that lab that you're using part of my insurance network? Because if it's not, you will be paying hundreds of dollars for your lab work that if you had gone in-network to your local in-network lab, you would have just paid a small copay. Patricia Kilmar, Health Kim, Healthcare Campaigns Director at uh, U.S. Perg. Thanks for talking to us. Antonio Brown, that's Antonio Brown without his uniform, we are told, without his jersey, and running out of the field. Now, we are going to get to Antonio Brown and... What happened there in just a moment? Coming up, though, former President Trump and his two oldest children hit with subpoenas in New York as the state attorney general wants to know more about their business dealings. And we'll talk about a big push that's being made uh, the last few years to boost the number of women directors in Hollywood. But a new study suggests a lot more progress is needed. So right now, back to Antonio Brown. If you didn't see it yesterday, took off his jersey, shoulder pads, undershirt, cut through the end zone, left Tampa Bay's game yesterday against the Jets in the middle of the game. He's had a history of erratic behavior, but people are asking, is what's going on related to head injuries? He's taken some nasty hits, won a few years ago in a game while he was on the Steelers. Dr. Armin Hose, L.A.-based psychiatrist, executive director of the nonprofit Sports Psych MD, helps athletes improve their mental health. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So give us your thoughts on on what 
is happening with Antonio Brown and then what people are saying, because there's a lot of like armchair diagnosis going on, especially on social media. People saying, look, it's CTE. He's taking hits and, and look what's happening. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really unfortunate story. Uh, and, and by the way, thanks for having me. Um, I really appreciate it. It's great to be here with you guys. Um, but yeah, it, it's obviously um, a huge story. And, and, you know, Antonio has been, he's been in the news for years now, this, you know, kind of one issue after another. Um, and uh, as you mentioned, there's a lot of armchair diagnosis kind of going on. I'm not even going to join that, that narrative because it's really impossible to say. Um, you know, until you've really sat down and, and been able to do a, a real, you know, authentic evaluation, you know, in a confidential setting, it, it's hard to to really make a clear diagnosis. But what we can say is that um, there's been a pattern over what seems like years of um, you know behavior that that certainly doesn't seem uh, to be in his best interest. Um, you know, stuff that. That seems you know dis- dysfunctional, right? Well, well that, let, let's talk a bit then in the hypothetical. Uh, I mean, can a doctor tell if if a patient, uh, what would seem to to most people erratic behavior, to say the least, can a doctor tell whether that is because a the person just is somewhat eccentric and eccentric, and some people you know are, or it's mm-hmm. because of some physical issue? Oh yeah, definitely. There's a, there's a way to tell these differences, um, and you know, in the in the case of uh, brain injury, um, you know, there there's certainly advanced testing that can be done to determine, uh, you know, if there's potentially some early signs of uh, you know, traumatic brain injury and the you know the chronic effects of that. Um, the uh, the diagnosis specifically of CTE, you know, which you know has come up a lot. Um, you know, that's a very difficult diagnosis to, to make. I mean, we just really don't have, I think at this stage, enough concrete research, uh, to, to say for sure. I think we're in the early stages, but, um, given his history, uh, he certainly would be at higher risk for something like that. Could you split those things apart? Can you split traumatic brain injury and, you know, actions after that from maybe just some other form of mental illness that has gone unaddressed because all these things can can look the same way in terms of acting out for sure and that's a great question um it's a great question and the answer really is i don't think you really can split those things right because uh as you also alluded it's just sort of a confluence um and one issue let's say you know chronic uh, brain injury you know can certainly lead to other issues would be, which would be like chronic psychiatric symptoms. Um, and then, you know, you're talking about the erratic behavior. Um, I mean, that could be from a neurological injury, like the traumatic brain injury, or it could be from, uh, you know, an undiagnosed primary mental illness, right, that we're just not sure about, which, you know, the brain injury could, could also uh, worsen, you know, and exacerbate. So that's the thing, you know, it would be so important for, for I think, uh, this person to just sit down uh, with with a professional just to kind of see what we find. You know, it, it could it could be a variety of things, but um, uh, actually, let me take that back, a team of professionals. Right. So there should be a neurologist involved as well as a psychiatrist um, you know, to get a, a very clear picture of what's going on. Dr. Armin Hose, L.A.-based psychiatrist, executive director of the nonprofit Sports Psych MD. 
You're listening to KNX In-Depth, your daily deep dive into some of the more important and more interesting stories affecting all of our lives. Along with Mike Simpson, I'm Charles Feldman. Things are getting more expensive. It's 2022 with a year of inflation. The reach is far and wide. Things that are going to cost more. Housing, gas, food, clothes, electricity, computers, high-tech gadgets, you know, all the good stuff that you need. Uh, how is this going to impact the economy? William Luther, director of the American Institute of Economic Research's Sound Money Project, also an economics professor, Florida Atlantic University. Professor, thanks for being with us. So I saw somebody saying, "You look, it's kind of like this. The prices have climbed so high, it's going to take them a while to come back down. So uh, how long do you think that while is going to be? Well, unfortunately, it's not looking like it's going to be any time soon. Um, the the members of the Federal Open Market Committee at the at the Federal Reserve are are predicting that inflation will be above its two percent target all the way through 2024. So uh, the rate of inflation is likely to come down, um, but it's not going to come down as quickly as perhaps we'd hoped. But we hoped initially it was going to come down quickly, as I understood it then, because the feeling was that it was a short-lived event. Uh, people were, just had this pent-up money. Uh, they, they wanted to spend uh, because they were going back out into the world. And even with the Omicron uh, variant, people are still going about, for the most part, their business. So why isn't it going back to normal in quotation marks? Well, we really have two things going on. The, the first thing is what economists call uh, real supply disturbances. Um, you know, uh, we, we stopped producing um, uh, for, for a good two months, uh, and it turns out that if, you, if you're not cutting down trees for two months, then roughly a year later, the lumber is pretty expensive. Um, those kind of real supply disturbances, they, they eventually work themselves out, and they tend to do so pretty quickly. Uh, as that supply recovers, prices come back down. Um, but we're also dealing with, with another factor, a nominal spending factor. You know, the, the government did a lot over the last two years to prop up incomes, um, to, to help businesses, uh, to, to prevent those businesses from going bankrupt. Um, they've, they've provided assistance to, to households. Um, and in the process, they've, they've boosted nominal spending a lot, probably more than they expected to. And that money is out in the economy now. It's circulating. And, and as a consequence, it's driving up prices. So although those, those supply disturbances work themselves out pretty quickly, that, that nominal spending that's been boosted is, is likely to persist for some time until, until the monetary authority uh, takes action. Yeah. And what does the Fed plan to be doing over at least the, the short term as we head through this year? Well, they, they have talked about uh, raising rates a little sooner than expected. They're also going to um, uh, see their balance sheet shrink. But the big thing that they've, that they've done so far is just communicate to the market that they recognize that inflation is high and that they're prepared to take steps to bring that back down. Again, I don't think that they're going to, to take those steps as quickly as as many of us would like. So those prices are likely to remain elevated for, for quite a while. Um, but at least so far, they've, they've kept inflation from, you know, from getting uh, out of hand to the extent that it was in, in, say, the 1970s or something like that. We don't have a big concern that there will be double-digit inflation uh, over the next year. Uh, but we, we do have a pretty, a pretty big concern that inflation will remain elevated over the next couple years. Now, it's not all bad news, is it? I mean, if you owe money and you have to pay money back, you're paying it back with cheaper dollars, aren't you? Well, that's right. So, 
um, if if you've borrowed and the and the inflation uh, that we've experienced over the last year wasn't expected when you agreed to the interest rate in that loan, then you're paying back with dollars that are worth less than you expected they would be worth, and and worth less than the uh, the lender expected they would be worth as well. And so it is a a boost for for borrowers. That doesn't do much for the economy as a whole, of course, because for every borrower there is a lender, and so one person gains at the expense of the other. Um, it is it is beneficial for the government, of course. The government is a, a very big borrower, um, and so to some extent, uh, we are wiping out some of the, the 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 debt that the government has incurred. Um, but again, that's that's not doing much for the economy as a whole. That's just a transfer. William Luther, the Sound Money Project at the American Institute of Economic Research and professor, Florida Atlantic University. New York's Attorney General recently issued subpoenas to former President Trump and his two kids, Ivanka and Donald Jr. It's all part of the ongoing civil investigation into the family's business practices. President Trump has sued trying to end the investigation. He says it's politically motivated. With us to talk about this, legal analyst and New York-based criminal defense attorney Sam Braverman specializes in white-collar crime cases, has been following the developments of this investigation. Sam, thanks for being here. So let's start with the obvious. Uh, family's going to try and get these subpoenas squashed, thrown out. What avenues do they have to try and make that happen? So the first thing that they have to do is they have to file a motion, timely motion filed with the court that's hearing the matter. And they have to argue that they would be either unduly burdensome, overbroad, or in some way or another that there is no, these documents are not likely to show any kind of offense. The attorney general's office has made an argument as to why they will show those kind of things and why they're narrowly tailored to achieve that goal. If the attorney general can do that, then a judge, like with the Eric Trump one, a judge is likely to say, no, these subpoenas will go forward and there will be a deposition and you will turn over the documents. While we all would like to think, and they certainly teach and do they still have civics classes? I think they do. Uh, you know, they, I wish we do. I wish we do, I really yeah. Hope so. but, but, but while, you know, they, they used to anyway teach that, you know, we're, we are all equal under the law. I mean, let's face it, it's the real world. Does being a former president work for or against Mr. Trump in this? So the answer is, he certainly is like a, a former president. He's going to have good legal counsel, which puts him ahead of the average person. And he's going to be able to make arguments that the best that he can do is when he was president, he couldn't comply because he was very busy and the documents he needed were executive privileged. The problem is in this context that neither of those apply. He's not president anymore. And they're talking about something about his business, which, as we all know, was part and parcel of his presidency. But nonetheless, it is still a separate entity. So in this case, I don't think that's going to make a difference for him. There's the the civil, which is this one, then there's the other criminal investigation, separate ones, different offices. Can they, though, point, can the Trump team point to the criminal and say, I can't give anything to the civil because, you know, they do cross paths. So just, you know, one at a time here. Well, sort of, they can do that. One thing he can, you know, Ivanka or Donald Jr. or the president himself could assert a Fifth Amendment privilege not to speak against themselves. The problem is that documents used in a business are not subject to the same Fifth Amendment privilege. If you have documents that you've used in a business, your business itself doesn't have that same right to privacy in the documents that you that you personally would have. So if unless they're privileged because that they were attorney-client communications 
or they're privileged for some other reason, the answer is they're not privileged. And so Donald Jr. and Ivanka could say, I'm not going to testify because I'm asserting my Fifth Amendment privilege, but the documents themselves have to be produced or they're in contempt, and that is in New York a misdemeanor. So you're a defense attorney. As a defense attorney, would it be smart or not smart to bring into the uh, equation politics? By that I mean, would you say as a defense attorney, hey, wait a minute, you know, the uh, attorney general of the state of New York, Democrat, uh, the DA in the criminal side in Manhattan, Democrat, this is all politics. Or is that a risky road to go down? It depends on who your audience is. So I believe if you look at the responses that have been filed by the Trump organization, in their answers in the case, their audience is not the judge. They're not trying to persuade a judge that this case is going to fail. They're trying to persuade the populace that still is deeply supportive of the ex-president. And so for that reason, what they argue makes a great difference in that other forum. In the forum of the court, it's not going to make a difference at all because every judge in New York is either appointed or elected if they're elected, it's because they were chosen and they basically in New York City run unopposed. So whether they're Democrat or Republican, it's a deeply political bench to begin with. Besides which, I don't think that that's really going to tilt uh, on this particular subject. This judge has already ruled that these people can be deposed. I would think that your best argument on the political front, other than the audience, is to try and limit the scope of what documents can be turned over and what documents the two people can be questioned about. And there you might achieve some goal of limiting how much damage can be done or what the scope of these questions might be. It could be really embarrassing at some point. So Eric Trump was interviewed. Does that give the office more firepower saying, hey, we got him. They're all Trump organization. There's no differences here. Or has something changed since that interview took place? I actually think that the judge is likely to keep a consistent point of view to say, you can talk about date, times, breadth, and other things like that, but he's going to get supposed, and Eric Trump was. And I think that that is going to be a similar answer for Ivanka and for Donald Jr. There is always some question, as you asked a moment ago about the president, does that change things? I, it doesn't change things under the law. Everybody is equal. Does it change things in reality? Probably does. My guess is that there's some level of discretion given to the judge to tailor it, not to help the president out, but to limit it a little bit. But I do think that in the end, you're going to see him under oath. So if this case ended up in your lap, how much of a headache would it be? <laughs> Broadly described, about as big as you can get. <laughs> On the other hand, as it once was described to me about a very famous um, mafioso in New York, he is the world's best client because he pays his bills and he gets into lots of trouble. I can imagine <laughs> that perhaps that might be true of the ex-president. If he does pay his bills, he could be a great client that way. He has lots of exciting things on the, on the calendar. All right. This legal analyst and uh, New York-based criminal defense attorney, Sam Braverman. Sam, thanks for talking to us. This is KNX In-Depth, your daily deep dive into some of the more important and interesting stories affecting all of our lives, along with Mike Simpson, 
I'm Charles Feldman. So the uh, cell phone carriers, they say they're going forward. They're not going to delay the launch of the new 5G services in some of the airline trade groups. So we've told you they are not happy about that. Airlines uh, for America, for example, says without appropriate mitigations, the 5G deployment around airports could disrupt as many as 345,000 passenger flights, which would impact about 32 million travelers. Are these concerns legit or are they being, you know, grossly exaggerated? Dr. Sean Pruchnicki is a retired airline pilot, currently a professor of aviation safety and operation at Ohio State University. Thanks for being with us. So uh, here you have this sort of battle between the phone companies and the airlines. Who's right? Well, thanks for having me on. Let me start by saying, and I think really both groups are right. Um, so, 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 so here's the problem: the when they talk about the altimeters not working, they're not talking about the normal altimeters that we use as pilots to determine our altitude. In other words, when we are told to, um, you know, climb and maintain three thousand feet or, you know, we want to level at 18,000 feet. It's not those altimeters. And that's the altimeter that we're using, you know, 99% of the time. So that's not the concern. The concern is the altimeter, which is called a radio altimeter. And that's telling us our exact height above the ground. And the only time we're using that is when the weather conditions are really, really low. The ceiling height, the visibility, very, very low. That's when that type of altimeter comes into play. So the airlines are right, and the manufacturers are right to be concerned about those types of altimeters not functioning properly. So they're right from that perspective. However, I can see where the you know the, the the cell phone companies really have a, a a valid point to make here from from two specific angles. One is that these 5G services have been used all over the world quite successfully for some time now, and with these uh, services in fact being used close to airports, where these radar altimeters are extremely important without any significant problems. So I can see why these companies are basically saying that the airlines are overreacting, that these problems have not been demonstrated in other places. Is it then how the rules were written here? Because didn't the FAA say, you know what, if this goes on, then then turn off those things. You can't use them. you got to divert. you got to go someplace else. Do other countries say, no, you can still, or there's some workaround or, or something? Well, yeah, so the FAA is taking a very conservative stance because they just don't know um, at this point in time if it's a problem or not. But look, you know, here's what it all comes down to. And I, you know, I've seen some of the projected numbers, you know, over you know, a quarter of a million flights disrupted, you know, and so forth and so forth. And these numbers seem to kind of change, you know, every other day or whatever. But, here, you know, here's the bottom line that we have to keep a little perspective on this when we see all of these uh, tremendous uh, numbers being thrown at us. And I actually saw one report that came out yesterday saying that people's, you know, lives are at risk, that uh, if this isn't dealt with right, you know, people could die, which I think is a gross uh, exaggeration of the concern. So it if we're so if this does interfere with our radio altimeters, this is only a concern, guys, for the really lowest of low type weather approach.
approaches. Okay, right? but, so but yes, but 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 hold that thought because that isn't necessarily insignificant. I mean, if you're living in a coastal community, say LAX, and you know as a, a pilot, sometimes the ceiling is very low. Or if you're living on the East Coast and you're at Kennedy or maybe at Chicago O'Hare, and the weather can get pretty dicey and you do need to use your radio altimeters, uh, the FAA, my understanding, is telling pilots you can't use it until this is all resolved. So what happens to your plane as you're coming in to LAX, the ceiling is really low, and you're being told by the governing body, the FAA, you can't use this piece of equipment. Well, so, so, so there's two points to make with, with what you're saying is, one, if that really is the concern or where they want to go is you simply don't make the approach. In other words, we would, we would say that, hey, you have to use your radio oximeters for what they call Category 2 and Category 3 type approaches. And if the weather simply that low, then you don't make the approach. Now, and I hear something, you know, you have a good point about JFK and LAX and San Francisco. And, and you're right, the visibility does get low and the ceilings do get low. However, they, and it's not that common for them to get so low that category two and category three approaches um, are required. I mean, that's really unbelievably low. And even though these coastal airports can, can see foggy, low ceiling scenarios, you have to understand that we're talking extremely low, almost visibility zero type approaches. And, and, and by the way, there are some of these airliners that can actually land in zero, zero conditions. It's those types of approaches specifically where these capabilities are required. So we just don't do those types of approaches. I think maybe those numbers might be exaggerated. I'm not really convinced that uh, the scope of the problem is really that big. Sean Pruchnicki, Dr. Sean Pruchnicki, retired airline pilot, professor of aviation safety, operation at Ohio State. Hollywood has been touting gender inclusion achievements behind the camera uh, this year, but the claims, maybe they're not adding up. Yeah, San Diego State University's Center of Women in TV and Film released the celluloid ceiling report, reveals that only 12 percent of the top 100 highest grossing films at the U.S. box office in 2021 were directed by women. This number is a 4% decline from the year before. With us now is director Janixa Bravo. Her latest film, Zola, which is up for seven Spirit Awards, getting a lot of Oscar buzz right now. Uh, Janixa, thanks for being with us. So, yeah, I guess 2020 was, was touted, hey, look, we, it's a good year, and now things are starting to fall off again. Are we disappointed? What are your thoughts? I think it's, uh, yeah, of course it's disappointing, but I feel I want to, I'm going to celebrate the thing that I think is sort of positive, right? Is that we're literally inside of a pandemic still very much so, and that there has been room for some films to actually get to have theatrical releases. Uh, And I do feel that is worth celebrating. Do I wish my film had had the chance to perform better? Absolutely. Do I wonder what would it have looked like if my movie came out in 2020? Of course. But I feel so grateful that it even got this very small window in which it got to perform inside of a moving going audience. Do you think that there is still overt uh, resistance in Hollywood to have female directors? Or do you think that what we're witnessing, and we mentioned at the top a 4% decline, actually, from the year before last. Or is it just so institutionalized that the movie studios don't even realize what they're doing? 
I have a feeling it's a bit of a bit of all of that, right? I don't think it's it's one one issue. There are probably a few happening at one time. I'm sure there is a resistance from some people, and I think some people probably don't even know. Uh, I also think that sometimes there are these like small numbers toted around as being a part of change, which I think very much are, are very much true. Like there are male directors that I know that feel there are more opportunities offered to women. And I feel while I have maybe perhaps benefited in some ways, I like to think that I have, but I, I don't want this idea to take away from my own real, like hard, you know, elbows to the ground, like, you know, rise to kind of like be considered or to be in the mix. But I know when I'm meeting on a project, be it for television or be it for a film, when I'm in the room, my assumption is, is that there is a short list of other black women that have also been considered before me, right? Or being considered alongside me, be it Nia DaCosta, Melina Matsukis, um, you know, Ava being in a totally different stratosphere, Dee Reese. I just assume that this list of five, six black women are always going to be on that list. And I do feel there ought to be room for more. I wonder from the outside public looking in when they hear about the headlines when movies have been big, they think everything is is fine and maybe there's more, you know, gender parity because Nita Costa is so, so candy man and Chloe Zhao Eternals. And then you hear about like the Maggie Gyllenhaal movie or or the power of the dog and people think, wow, all these these female filmmakers are doing so great. But then that still only makes up the small percentage. It's just it's, those it's films a got a lot of press. small number. Yeah. I mean, Nia's movie actually broke a record, didn't it? Uh, which is so radical, but that one movie breaking a record isn't enough. I mean, do you get personally the sense that, that there is a problem when you have a project? Do you personally feel any kind of resistance because you're a female director? I would say that the resistance I feel, if, if it is sex-based, I don't know that I'm 100% attuned to it, that what I tend to feel more is creative. And that's because the work that I'm interested in making tends to be a bit left of center, a little bit more unusual. So that, th that note feels the loudest to me. And I would say if there is another note regarding, you know, an ism, it would probably be race before sex. And that, that's, of course, in my own experience. Tell us about Zola, for people who haven't heard or who just heard. Seven Spirit Awards. Okay, that sounds like a lot. Or maybe it's, oh, road trip movie. I like a road trip movie. What do you want people to know? Um, Zola is a dark comedy. Uh, it is based on a road trip between two women. Two women become fast friends, um, and they go on a road trip from Detroit to Florida with the promise of making money dancing and things do not go as planned. Uh, the thing that I most want people to know is that this is a story that was told on Twitter by a then 19 year old black woman in 2015. And um, the, the final product is a retelling of the story that she so beautifully told on Twitter. I'm curious, do you think that an audience can tell the difference if they didn't know between a film that's directed by a guy and a film that's directed by, by a woman? Because you always hear critics saying, oh, this is a woman's film, it's obvious. Is it? 
I think sometimes there is a difference, but I, I don't know that, you know, if you've seen Power of the Dog or just yesterday I saw this film called Novice. And um, I I think, you know, I knew that it was directed by a woman, but there's something incredible, this film specifically, there's something super muscular about it. And I don't know that, I guess I am not processing work necessarily through the lens of gender. I tend to be processing it more through feelings, through palette, through energy. I mean, yes, I am I am gendered female, but I think I engage with my maleness a good deal in my own work. And I think Jane Campion is someone who also does. And there are a long list of women who also do. So I don't know that I'm the right person to ask that question, but... I do think that with Zola specifically, which I made, which is a film that traffics in sex trafficking and sex work, I think that the difference, one of the market differences is that where you would find women in a, the vulnerable position of selling themselves or being purchased, um, the camera turns the gaze on the men who do the purchasing. And so there is no female nudity inside of that movie. And that's not to say that a man couldn't have arrived at that decision, but it just so happens that I did. Denixa Bravo, latest film Zola, up for seven Spirit Awards. Thanks for talking to us. Thank you so much for having me. That's in-depth for the day to start off the new year, and we'll be back tomorrow. Oh, it's a new year, isn't it? That's right, 2022. A lot of twos. A year of shows ahead of us. Yeah. We'll be back tomorrow.